Well, if you turn back to Mark chapter 13, it would be very helpful to follow along. It's not the easiest passage and many different of opinion have been given over the years, but it is a wonderful passage on uh, events that are still future to or one event that's still future to us and events that were future to these disciples. We've been watching the news this week. There have been some unusual um, surprise, some surprises to economists. Uh, the growth of the economy has surprised many, but one of the things that I read yesterday was that the great surprise to economists in the United Kingdom is the growth of bookings throughout January for hot summer holidays. It's caught them unawares. They thought there would be a lack of bookings because of the economic crisis and climate. And yet, uh, there's been a dramatic rise in holiday bookings. And the reason the BBC says for these, uh, for these uh, huge amount of bookings is that people are saying, well, the next six months are going to be difficult economically. It's going to be a tough period. But they want something to look forward to. They want a holiday, a rest to come that will give them motivation for the present, that will enable them to drive forward through the, the tough times of the next six months and have a bright spot in the future to look forward to. And really that is the heart of Christ here in Mark 13. That our future rest, that this future bright spot of the return of Christ, that it will motivate us, it will drive us forward in our present lives through all the economic crises, through the tough times, through the gains and the losses of the many decades of our lives, that we will so keep our eyes upon the future rest that it will drive us forward saying, I will keep motivated. I will keep living for Christ. I will not be distracted by the events of this world. But I will live for God and for his glory. Whatever comes my way. Because my rest is yet to come. If we look into Mark chapter 13. Jesus is informing the disciples of two major future events for them. Two major events in world history that are so vital for them to know about and to think about uh, that if they forget these events, he says, you will forget who you are. You will forget why you are here. You will not live for me if you forget that these events are coming. You will think that I am out of control unless I tell you about these two major future events. He tells them what will come about. He tells them what dangers they will face in their generation. But, he says, as they consider these occasions, they must not be distracted by them, but remember to keep walking faithfully before their God. Now, maybe you've walked through the streets of Jerusalem and you've been to the Wailing Wall, the nearest place you can get to where the old temple used to be. The old temple in the first century uh, that would have still been there in Mark 13 was a glorious structure that you could see from miles around set upon a hill. Uh, historians say the stone that it was made of and the gold facades shone out even in the darkness so that people could see the temple glowing from the hills around. And so these um, disciples and Jesus, they come 
to the foot of the temple. They're standing there. They're amazed at the beauty of the temple. Nowadays, of course, there's nothing there. It's just um, some foundations that you can go in a tunnel and you can go down this tunnel and see some old foundations. But there's nothing left of this glorious structure. A structure that in Christ's day was seen as the house of God. The meeting place of God and man. The place where God revealed his beauty, his glory, his majesty. And so whenever they looked at the temple, the Jews and the disciples, they didn't see bricks, mortar, a couple of doors. They saw glory. They saw God. They saw holiness. They saw heaven. They saw a picture of their creator meeting with them. Their emotions were engaged. And that's why at the beginning of Mark 13, as they walk past this temple, they cannot help themselves. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Their emotions are engaged. Here is the meeting place on earth between God and man. But Jesus brings their emotions down to earth with a bump. What was supposed to have been a place of joyous worship has now become, as Jesus called it earlier in Mark, a den of thieves. No longer, he says, is this place a place of glory, it's a place of corruption. No longer a place of beauty, but a place of thieving and robbery. It wasn't the place it was supposed to be. I used to live near a a house, and if you were face on to this house, it had an attached garage, beautiful garage door, Lovely brick around the front and a roof stretching up with tiled roof. But if you went, if you look from the side, the garage, that was it for the garage. The garage was just a front wall and a few tiles stretching back, about three tiles thick, and a garage door. There was nothing behind it, it was just a facade. And although it looked brilliant and beautiful from the front, there was actually nothing behind. And this is what the temple had become. In Jesus' day. It's, it's golden. It still shines in the dark. People still look at it and say it's glorious. But go behind the scenes. And everybody's being corrupt. And disobeying God. And offering the wrong sacrifices. And stealing off the visitors and the pilgrims. It's, it's just a facade. It's a fancy looking thing. With no substance. So when Jesus asks here in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? He's not saying, do you see them with your eyes? Of course they saw them with their eyes. He's asking them, do you really perceive what the temple has become? Do you really see what is going on behind the scenes? How corrupt and lost it's all become? This is nothing more than a facade. It's an outer wall with no presence of God behind No substance. There's no depth of love for the Christ. They have forsaken him whom they are supposed to have been following. So Jesus has not been a killjoy here when he brings their joy crashing down to earth with a bump. He's being realistic. He says in verse 2, very soon, you see these stones? You see this temple? You see this facade? Not long now, there will not be one stone Upon, a, upon another. It's all going to come tumbling down. The facade will be gone. And everybody will see it for what it is. Nothing. 
God is not, has long forsaken this place. And if you go there today, you'll see that it's true. Not a single stone upon another. There's no temple. Just a wailing wall where weeping men and women long for the temple's return. You see, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is warning his disciples of this soon-to-arrive terrible event. Where the temple will be besieged, where Jerusalem will be besieged. And the temple will be pulled down bit by bit until it's destroyed utterly. We know from history books that this event happened uh, just 40 years after Jesus' prediction. In 70 AD, it was destroyed along with the slaughter of a million Jews by the Roman Emperor Titus. If you go to the Colosseum, just around the corner from the Colosseum in Rome... The arch celebrating this destruction to, to Emperor Titus is still there. It's, a, it's an amazing archway. You can see the, the carvings of the slaughter of the Jews and the destruction of the temple. They, they celebrated at their victory and the, the getting rid of God from the earth. But it wasn't. He'd already left. So Jesus says to his disciples in verse 14 that this will be the fulfillment of the prophetical warning given way back in Daniel 9.27. It will be an abomination that will enter the temple that will bring desolation Daniel had promised. Jesus says it's coming very soon. It will be a shocking time for all. Everyone in and around Jerusalem, he says, they should flee from the mountains. Don't try and defend the temple. Don't try and um, keep hold of these bricks. It's just a facade anyway. Flee for the mountains and pray that it won't be in winter. Pray that these events will not happen at a difficult time for you. Run for the hills because nothing is going to stop it. God's left and he's going to bring it crashing down. It will be a time, he says in verse 24, of great tribulation. And the Son of Man will be seen coming to the Ancient of Days, the God of Israel. It's not referring to a time when Jesus returns to earth there. But it harks back again to Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. Where Jesus is seen in the heavens. With all of his great power and glory. Coming before his father. The ancient of days. And there even as, as Judaism is destroyed. Finally and fully. Yet he will stand before his father in all his glory. And he will say. I'm not out of control in this moment. I haven't lost the plot. I'm still in control. I'm still in charge of the, uh, the future events of the nations. And despite the awful destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, God, Christ, will be seen in all his magnificent glory. Still the beginning and ancient of days. So Jesus comes to these disciples and he warns them of an event still future to them. But then he uses this towards the end of Mark 13. As an opportunity to talk about a still further event. A further event beyond AD 70. And still beyond us. Still future to us as well. That of his own return to judge the world. He says... This is the next big event in the church calendar. I'm going to 
Destroy that old way of religion that has become a facade. I'm going to build a new kingdom that will last to the end of the age. And then I'm going to return to my people. For the Jesus who went back to heaven after his resurrection promised, If I go, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Notice in verse 3. He comes down the hill from the temple and he he climbs up with the disciples the Mount of Olives that overlooks Jerusalem. And as they stand on the Mount of Olives and they look back at the temple, he uses that as the occasion to talk about this event that is still future to all of us, his own return. He tells them, he tells us this morning that between his return and then, there will be Many troubles in the world. The world will creak and groan with the frustration of sin. Religions will creak and groan with their facade and their emptiness. There will be earthquakes. There will be violence. There will be slaughters. There will be temple destructions throughout the history of the world. He says there will be persecution against God's people. There will be betrayal. There will be false Christs. um, False teachers. Proclaiming that they are the saviours of the world. But he says. These are not signs of the end. These are signs that the world has fallen. No one knows when I will come. No one knows the day nor the hour when I will return. Throughout the history of the world you'll see the groaning of creation. And all of these point to the necessity of Christ's return. To renew his world. And to gather in his people. The way he talks is the same as Paul talks in Romans 8. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. The pangs that will bring to birth a new world. The arrival of an age to come. There's signs that the world isn't right. That it groans under the weight of its own sin. But Jesus will return to judge the sins of the world. And to make his earth right again. So here in this chapter Jesus is telling them how to react. How do you react in the light of these two future events. One of which is still future to us. Like those who are booking their holidays. To to give them motivation till the summer. To keep going. Jesus says keep your eyes on the return of Christ. And consider What it means for you and how it impacts you in your present life. It asks us this question. Are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you watching out for that? Are you living in the light of your eternal rest? For Jesus, as we said in the children's talk, could return at any moment. We don't know the hour or the time. He could come before this evening's service. Or as one, one writer says, he, this could be just the early church. We could still be living in the early church times of 2,000 years as the early church and still 10, 20,000 years to go. We don't, we don't know when Christ will come. But either way, Jesus is saying, be ready because you don't know when he will come. Concentrate on future events, yes. But do them as the driving motivation to live 
a holy and godly life tomorrow, <coughs> on Monday, as you go back to work. You think, how should I live in school? What should, I, how should, I, what should my character be in college and in university? How should I react and respond to the situations of my workplace? Think of this primarily. Christ is going to return to judge the world. I'm going to be with him. And I want to reflect that future rest, that future eternity in my present life. So Jesus sits them down on this Mount of Olives. And he says, I want you to remember and live in the light of my return. And he gives them six things to remember. And I've got, a, I've got six points in my sermon. That was the introduction. So we're going to be here all day. Dylan won't be preaching tonight. It's going to be a long one. No, there's six brief things. Uh, how do we live in the light of Christ's return? Number one. Here Christ says, as we await his return, remember that you live in Christ's world. You live in his world. Look at verse 34. He gives an illustration to guide us to our thinking. He says, it's like a man, this world. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge. That's what you, you and I do, isn't it? When we go on holidays, we put our servants in charge of the home. Um, each with his work, he says. But he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. The doorkeeper must say, the master's gone. But he's going to come back. And I must be ready for his return. Now what is he saying here? He's saying that he's about to die upon a cross. He's about to be buried for the sins of the world. But he is, as we've sung, going to rise again. And then ascend back into heaven. He's going away on a journey. He's leaving us behind. He's left. He's leaving the disciples. He's leaving us all behind. He's going to be with his father. He says, this is the illustration. Like the master of the house, I'm going to leave my servants behind to look after my world. And I'm going to give each one of my people his own assigned task to do. What is he saying? He's saying, remember this, you live in my world. This is my world. And yes, AD 70 will come. Yes, there will be horrific events, wars, rumours of wars, earthquakes, trials and tribulations. But I'm still in charge, even though I'm away. You know, while we wait for world history to be wrapped up, it's important for us to remember this. Because if we forget this, we think the world is chaotic, meaningless, has no future or purpose. And we get lost in the nitty gritty of the world. And we forget we live in Christ's world. He's still in charge. He's still in control, even though he's away from us for a moment. He's in charge of our lives, our homes, our church, our world. And even when everything looks out of control, as if everything's turning to chaos, it's falling apart, it's disintegrating around us, our worlds tumble around us, we think, where do I go from here? We remember Christ is on a journey and he's coming back. And in the meantime, he's left me to do a work and to live for him and his world. The chaos of the world reminds us that we are not the kings or the lords of our world. 
It humbles us, doesn't it, when we're out of control. Sin is ruining Christ's world. But as God's people, we recognise whose world we're in. And there's a rest, there's a peace, there's an assurance that this brings. As we do what he says and we live in the light of Christ's return in unstable times. Secondly, Jesus says in the very same verse that we are to be careful to use our gifts and talents as we await for his return. What's he say in verse 34? Every one of his servants has a gift from him to carry out while he's away. Every single Christian has been personally gifted by the risen Christ. Paul talks about this over in Ephesians. He quotes Psalm 68. He says, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave, says Paul, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Jesus is saying this in Mark 13, 34. He's saying, yes, I've gone, but it's my world and I've given you work to do. So don't slack up, don't ease off, don't take your foot off the accelerator, go to bed and forget about everything until I return. No, Get on, be busy in my work. Use the talents I have given you. If you're a doorkeeper, be a doorkeeper. If you're a sweeper, be a sweeper. If you wash the windows, wash the windows. Whatever task God has given us in the world, in his house, get on with it. Move forwards. Live out the life he's called you to. Because Christ has not only given us gifts within his house, he's given us the authority And the charge to use them while he's away. Therefore, we are not to waste our time arguing about future events. He's saying your focus should be, what's your gift? How are you going to do it? Now get on with it. Live it out. And in this, Jesus says, thirdly, be careful not to be led astray by false teachers. Verse 5 Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone deceive you. There are many false teachers in the world all telling us the best way to live. We only need to turn on Christian TV, don't we? And there are many teachers on there saying this is the way to live. Invest your life in this world. You'll gain money and riches and wealth. You'll be happy and you can have Christ and all the world. There are many false Christs who will come our way. Many false gospels telling us this is the good news. Follow in this way, but they will lead us, if we aren't careful, away from the true gospel and the true Christ. And as a result, our lives will collapse because we'll begin to believe a lie rather than the truth. Jesus alone is the true Christ. We must listen to him. He alone is the true teacher of our age. And the true gospel is... That our only hope is in him. And it is his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his high priestliness. It is our only hope. And so Jesus says, don't listen to any false teaching that distracts from me and my good news. Don't let 
them leads you astray like a lost sheep. So you fall off a cliff and you want to know where your life is going. Read the Bible. Learn the truth. Stick to your guns. Keep following Jesus. Invest your time in the gospel and the church. Be vigilant in this. And don't be distracted in any aspect of your life. Just love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as he says, fourthly, you need to be awake. You need to be awake. Be alert. Verse 32. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. Verse 35. Therefore stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. When I say to you disciples, I say to Emmanuel Church, be awake, stay awake, be alert. Means to be prepared, to keep watch. Because you don't know when Jesus will return, you must always be ready for his return. There's no days off in the Christian life. Tomorrow I'll live godly. But today, I'll live for myself. Tomorrow I'll invest in eternity. But today, it's all about me. Our souls are at stake. Our eternal destination is at stake. So we are to be ready for his return by trusting him. With our soul, with our life, with our heart, with our everything. We have to turn to Christ and declare him Lord of our lives. To submit our ways to him. To follow in his paths. We have to be ready to meet him by trusting him. By not being sleepy in spiritual things. But by being proactive. Lots of us, aren't we, as as Christians, especially on a Sunday morning, we're bleary-eyed. Perhaps careless about our spiritual walk. And we begin investing our lives in passing things, entertainments, hobbies, pastimes, good things. But can be so distracting if we're not careful. We must be up and about. Active in the Lord's service. Seeking his renown in all the earth. That must be our primary focus of each and every week. People keep reminding me I'm 50 this year. I'm not 50, I'm only 18. can't believe it. I look in the mirror, I'm 50. In my head, I'm 18. But I'm shocked by how fast life is just flying by. We really do only have a short time here. It's not a myth. There's no time to spend our lives in ease and comfort and presumption that one day in the future we will live the Christian life somehow, somewhere. But for now, we just get on. With our normal lives. Without the thought of him. Jesus is not going to give. A three year countdown to his return. He's not going to say. See the time is coming. There's just ten minutes to go. Now be up and active in my service. He says you don't know when. So you must always be. Ready and living for me. Always be about my work. Always be using the gifts I've given you. Always, throughout your life here on earth, wake up each morning and say, Christ, 
could come back. I'm going to live my life in readiness for his return. Then fifthly, Jesus says, in that you must be ready to suffer for him. It's not going to be an easy time where you can just wake up in the morning, everything's going to be fine and dandy, nothing's going to go wrong, and everything's going to be a life of ease, and you can get on living for him. No, verse 13, he says, you will be hated by everyone. If you live for Christ, the godly, says Paul to Timothy, will suffer persecution. We look around the world, even at present, and some Christians are suffering the most horrific suffering. North Korea, China, Pakistan, many countries are killing Christians, making them disappear in horrendous ways. We know very little about this extreme side of persecution, which is why so often we in the West can play fast and loose with our faith. Oh, it's going to be easy today. It's going to be fine. And even if I tell someone about my faith, they'll say, well, that's fine, it's your opinion. I've got my own opinions. And so we take up our faith when it's convenient. We lay it aside when it gets in the way of our pleasure. But we must be careful in this, mustn't we? And we must expect, over the next few years even, mounting pressure to conform to the morals of this world and standing up for the truth of Christ will bring persecution along with it. Saying Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. That no one can come to the Father except through him. It will have a profound stirring effect upon our nation and our world. We mustn't be surprised if fiery trials come our way. This is the normal way that Christianity grows. We've lived in a safe bubble, haven't we, for many years and enjoyed the freedom of the West. But it is, in the big picture of church history, a little blip, not the normal. You must be willing to stand up for Jesus today, to not be ashamed of him. Now, because if we were ashamed of him in times of ease, how would we ever stand for him if someone knocks on the door and says, do you believe in Christ? Because if you do... You're going to die. Like, how would we do that if we can't do this? And when it does come, then Jesus is telling us rejoice that you've been called to be faithful, even unto death, in the hope of the resurrection. Be awake. Be ready for false teachers. Be ready for persecution. But lastly, what is our task? What's our main work until Christ returns? It is to be faithful witnesses for the gospel in our generation. Verse 10. Jesus says, I will not return until all people groups of the world have heard the gospel. Our witness for Jesus has massive consequences. Bigger than ourselves. Bigger than our own little world. It's linked here to the return of the Son of God. Therefore, as God's people, our heart must be driving forward, driving outwards, driving across the nations, the gospel of the Saviour as the only hope for humanity until every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation of the world has heard the name of Christ and heard that he has died and risen again for sinners. We start with our neighbour attached to our house. 
We tell them of Jesus. We live such good, good and godly lives among them that they glorify our Father in heaven. We start there, but we don't stop until all the world has heard the good news of Christ and him crucified. I was to sing as a boy that old wonderful hymn. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And before he returns... He wants everyone to have heard of him. Everyone to have heard what he has done for them. So let's be faithful in gospel work until our master returns. It won't be long, will it? Before we hear that trumpet sound, his angels introduce him. Here is the Lord. He's come back to be with you. You're his family. But until that day, we must live faithfully and courageously so that we will hear that well done from the lips of our King. The Lamb of God has died for us. He's seated in authority in heaven now. One day he will gather us in to his arms. He'll say, you're home. And in the light of that coming rest, I want you to be motivated for present service.